For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are talking to a man who has been a witness, someone who has seen it happen, and then talked with all the particulars about how it all went down. He's a golf journalist, but that may be a distant second to his role as a golf lover. It is a pleasure to be joined by Pete McDaniel here on The Range. Pete, it's great to talk with you. It's been a while. It has been a while. I tell you, it, gosh, I can't even remember, but several years for sure. I start every interview on the range the same way. How did golf enter into your world? Eleven-year-old uh, growing up in Arden, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Asheville, North Carolina, which is uh, probably famous for several people, including Roy Williams, the North Carolina basketball coach. Um, uh, Eleven years old. Had a brother, a couple, a few years older than I, and a cousin, a couple years older than I, and they started caddying at Biltmore Forest Country Club, and I begged my parents to let me go tag along, and since they were friends uh, of the caddy master, they contacted him and he said, "Okay, send him on out. I'll I'll find something for him to do." So I started out shagging. Um, for your those of your audience who don't know what a shag boy is. Uh, it's, it's a kid, usually a slight kid like myself who, um, collects golf balls that are hit by a practicing, uh, member of a country club. Um, what you do, you have a little shag bag, which is a miniature golf bag full of golf balls, practice balls, and you dump them at the feet of the, the, uh, player. Then you run out on the practice range. And the, the player hits golf balls to you and you pick them up and put them in the shag bag. And then you run back to the, the tee and uh, you t dump them out again and you run back out in the doggone practice range and you repeat the process. Now, I got so good at shagging that I could actually catch the balls in the shag bag when he hit wedges or lob wedges. Back in that, that era, they didn't have lob wedges. They had sand wedges. Um, and so I was always an athlete. So I graduated to carrying a single uh, bag over that hilly golf course that I grew up on, Bitmore Forest Country Club. A couple years later, I was doing a double loop, making about six or seven dollars for um, 18 holes. So that's how I got started. And once you got a club in your hands, as I understand it, you were quite the competitor. I was pretty good. Um, I never will forget. Uh, after caddying for this, this member at uh, Biltmore Forest Country Club, he had four golf clubs, a nine iron. These were wooden shafted golf clubs. That kind of dates me. A nine iron, seven iron, five iron, and a three iron. And he said, here, you take these and see if you can uh, see what you can do with them. And so I took those clubs home. I lived in the country right across the road, Mills Gap Road, was Christ School. 
and Christ School had a, a huge cow field, uh, pasture, cow pasture. Um, and my brothers and a creek ran through it. And not only did we used to fish in that creek, but we would swim in it too in the summertime. So we took that, uh, those golf clubs, my brother and cousins, and we made like a little five hole golf course. And that's how I learned how to play. Now, just as an addition to that, I, the creek bank was sandy. And so I learned how to play bunker shots by hitting a nine iron wide open, lay the face wide open and hitting that nine iron off that sandy bank. And to this day, I'm one of the best bunker players that I know, you know. I told that story to Tiger and he of course said BS, but that's okay. <laughs> so it sounds a lot like uh, Seve Ballesteros back in the day. You, you learn how to use one club and do a lot of different things with it. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, you also had exposure to professionals in the Asheville area that kind of reminded you, yeah, professional golf may not be the uh, route you want to go, though. Exactly. I um, Asheville had uh, the luxury for us young guys of having uh, hosting a Chitlin Circuit event. And the Chitlin Circuit was nothing uh, more than the Black Golf Tour which was held on the uh, uh, up and down the southeastern uh, seaboard, uh, different states from Alabama, maybe even Louisiana, uh, as far south, all the way up to Virginia. And you had these, these municipal golf courses that hosted uh, these very good players, players like Chuck Thorpe, Jim Thorpe, uh, Jim Dent, um, Lee Elder, all of these guys who eventually made it to the PGA Tour. Well, I was probably 13 or 14 and was a pretty good stick. I played high school golf and played a little college golf as well. And I thought I could play. You know, I kind of patterned my swing after Jack Nicklaus. I hit this power fade. Well, it wasn't much of a power fade because I was only about 125, 130 pounds, but that's the shot that I played. And so my mother dropped me off at that golf course and I never will forget, as we were driving up the, the driveway uh, to the golf course, I spotted all these cars lined up along the ninth hole. And you had Cadillacs and Lincolns, you know, the, the hot cars of the day, luxury cars. And behind the ninth green was a makeshift practice uh, tee. And they would, because the course didn't have... Uh, uh, practice range it was the Asheville Municipal Golf Course, and on that on that tee box, that makeshift tee box, were about ten or twelve um, very colorfully clad golfers who looked like me. And I tell you, they were hitting these little tight draws. You know, every one of them. You know, my mother let me out, and I stood behind them, and I'm just in awe of these guys who were dressed to the doggone nines and they hit these doggone little tight draws. And I looked at those shots and I said, you know what? My little game uh, isn't going to be good enough to compete against guys like this. So I decided at that time, you know, I'll continue to caddy and I'll continue to try to write. And uh, that might be a better profession than to try to play professional golf. And that is what changed my course <laughs> that particular day. What was your first job in journalism? 
Um, I graduated from UNC Asheville on a Saturday, got a call from the editor of the hometown newspaper, the Asheville Citizen Times, offered me a job. And I started out, believe it or not, writing obituaries. That was, that was how I learned newspaper. Uh, gra- uh, graduated from that after a couple of months and, and uh, went to the sports department at the Asheville Citizen and uh, worked under a guy named Larry Pope, who was the editor. And he gave me some really nice assignments. One of them was to um, interview Joe Lewis, the great uh, uh, fighter. By that time, Joe Lewis was refereeing um, wrestling matches. <laughs> so he came to town and, and uh, so I went over to the Civic Center and interviewed him. And when I shook his hand, the most memorable thing about the interview, I was totally in awe, but I, my hand, which isn't really small, but it was nowhere near as big as his. It was like putting my hand in a baseball mitt, you know, a catcher's <laughs> mitt. That's how big this man's hands were. And surprisingly, they were soft as cotton. And that's what I remember about uh, Joe Lewis. But that's how I got started in the, in the, uh, as a journalist. And that was in 1974. That's how long I've been at this stuff. You had quite the journey just to get into really golf journalism. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like you started writing about this game that you love. You you had to work your way there. Absolutely. Um, I stayed at the Asheville Citizen Times for about a year and a half. Then I I um, decided that um, you know I had a, a my best friend and my golf hustling partner was a, a trumpeter. And he had a band, they formed a band and they knew that I wrote lyrics. So they invited me to write lyrics for them. And so I traveled with that band for about a year trying to uh, write a hit song for them. We had a couple songs out, but they weren't hits. Uh, So from there, I transitioned to selling life insurance uh, for Life of Georgia for about three years, I think. And I had a really good time doing that and made some pretty good money, but it wasn't my calling and I knew it. but I got a call from um, a friend of mine who I worked with at the actual Citizen Times telling me that there was a position as a, a sports writer open at the Hendersonville Times News. I went and interviewed for the job, got it. Spent 14 years there, uh, the last 12 of them as the sports editor, where I covered absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, from uh, high school uh, sports to dog shows to horse racing, um, you know, contests, the whole nine yards. But I kind of focused the last two or three years uh, that I was there, I kind of focused on golf and covered all the local golf tournaments and got to cover the Masters in 1993. And um, and that's when I decided I'd, I'd see if I could be uh, a little bit uh, – uh, if I could fit in at a higher level. And um, the New York Times owned the newspaper that I was working at, the Hendersonville Times News, and they also owned, guess what, Golf World and Golf Digest. So um, I told my bosses that, uh, you know, it was time for me to move on, and I, I wanted to work for one of the magazines. I got an interview with Terry Galvin, who was the editor of um, Golf World. I had somewhat of a 
a tryout, I guess you would say, the 1993 U.S. Open at Baltusrol. They flew me up. I um, met Jeff Russell and all the guys at Golf World um, and Terry Galvin and, and all those guys. And, and I actually, I think I blew them away with my expertise and my ability to write on deadline. I think that's what really earned me the job because I think um, I'm trying to think who won that year. I used to know it right on the top of my Lee um, Jansen won. And so I wrote, not only do, did I do a notes column and I did a lead, I did also a feature on Jansen for one of the, the uh, New York Times owned um, newspapers. Um, and I also wrote a, a column, all of that on deadline. And I think it just <laughs> blew him away. I got the job with Golf World and, uh, you know, was fortunate enough to kind of see what I could do. And, you know, blessed as I was, I was, I was able to stick around a little while. What do you think about, and looking back, what do you think about those days on tour covering professional golf in what can only be described as a pre-Tiger era? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a learning experience for me. Like I said, I, I had covered local golf tournaments and the Masters was my first big uh, you know, tournament that I covered in 93. And then the, um, the U.S. Open. Um, but I started out actually covering the LPGA, the LPGA and colleges. And I had a TV column as well at Golf World. So I really hadn't been out on tour covering the big boys that much, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm telling you what, covering the LPGA was probably uh, a blessing in disguise because I got to see some really great players. I mean, um, these ladies could flat out play. Yeah. And consummate professionals taught me so much about the golf swing. And I, as so much as, as a matter of fact, I used to uh, tell anyone, if you want to learn how to swing a golf club, don't tune in and watch the PGA Tour because you'll never reach that level and you won't understand what they're trying to do. Watch the ladies. The ladies are so pure with the fundamentals and, and their tempo is so much more uh, like what amateurs uh, would want to uh, duplicate, you know? So, um, but those were learning years. And then the colleges, uh, you know, I saw some great players before they became great pros. That was a great experience. And that's where I had an opportunity to interview Tiger and follow him in those early years. And that was the springboard to the PGA Tour and, and um, you know, the little bit of fame that I was able to uh, achieve. Well, Pete, you did mention Tiger Woods, and we want to talk about Tiger, obviously, but we got to start with the now. Uh, his recent accident in Southern California uh, was very scary. Um, we still don't know the full extent, but what were your thoughts when you heard about it? I was absolutely stunned. I had come home from getting my first uh, COVID-19 vaccination uh, that had taken weeks to line up. And um, so I got home and I was kind of basking in the glory of that. And I'm in the backyard. It was a beautiful day, a sunshiny day. I'm sitting in the backyard playing with my puppy and 
and just uh, enjoying the day. And then I got a telephone call from a friend telling me I need to rush inside and, and turn on CNN. And there it was. And I just stood there watching this unfold, uh, the report, and watching the images of the crash. The wreckage uh, scared me absolutely to death. The report at the time was that he was in moderate uh, to critical condition. So I'm thinking the worst, absolutely. Um, it was like a nightmare. And so I, I, I kept pacing the floor. I kept getting phone calls from friends and family and, and uh, TV producers wanting, my, wanting me to comment and uh, wanting me to go on the air. And, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. But um, I'm worried that uh, I'm never going to see my friend again. So um, I decided, uh, and I kind of weighed the options. What do I do? And I said, well, I can call his mother. And then I said, well, she's probably on a plane, on a flight out to L.A. Uh, from uh, uh, Orlando. I mean, not Orlando, but from Florida. And um, so, but I decided to give it a shot. I called her. And she allayed all my fears in the first few minutes. She told me kind of what happened. And, um, and she assured me that it was not a tragedy and it was the injuries were not life-threatening. And that's all I needed to hear. And from that moment on, I was kind of calm. I, I called some of my friends who were just as panicked as I was and family and, and let them know that, yeah, it looks bad, but I've been assured that he is going to be okay. That was the uh, relief that I needed to make it through the day, but it was still a tough 24 hours. I wrote a, um, a blog for African American Golfers Digest uh, titled 24 Hours, and I discussed how I wasn't able to sleep that night. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking, replaying that, the scenes from the wreckage over and over in my head, and, and I thought about the recent tragedy, um, uh, involving Kobe Bryant, and, and I thought about all of the other heroes uh, who had died way too soon in uh, tragic, under tragic uh, circumstances, and it, it, I couldn't go to sleep. So, you know, and that's the way it's been for me. I'm somewhat relieved now that I keep hearing that he is, he's uh, had the surgery, the surgeries, I guess. And uh, it looks like he's got a long road ahead of him, but um, at least he's going to be able to one day, you know, hold his children, maybe even uh, dance with his daughter and, and take his son out and play around the golf. That's the best um, about uh, the situation. You mention it allayed your fears. And I think, and, and you mentioned Kobe Bryant, and I think to myself, if with what went on with Kobe Bryant, and that was really close to where I have lived. And if, if somebody had said, you know what, Kobe Bryant came out of it and he survived, but he was not the Kobe Bryant that we knew, we'd at least be like, thank God he's alive. Exactly. And in this case, it was almost immediate, like, well, this is going to derail his comeback attempts. How long is it going to be till he plays? And I just, I, I couldn't. I couldn't wrap my head around that. It, it was just so, so weird. And, and I was fortunate. I was actually on the air at Fox sports radio that night. Mm -hmm. So at 10 o'clock Pacific time, 1 AM Eastern, 
the statement had come out, at least kind of detailing what went on. So for me, I was at least able to exhale a little bit. This is the statement. This is, he's resting comfortably. Okay. We're okay for right now. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine, you know, I, I was in the exact same boat earlier in the night, but, but to see people jump to that conclusion of, okay, let's start talking golf again. I, I just, it just seems so premature. Well, I had similar, uh, feelings as well. I couldn't quite understand all the speculation, uh, about, you know, the, the, the drinking, the alcohol, the drugs, whatever the heck they were talking about. That really pissed me off, to be honest with you. And I hate to be so, so blunt. It, well, it should. But it really irritated me. Uh, and that was the first thing that I heard. I mean, some of the commentators tried to, to um, you know, ease into that. But others, uh, it was the first doggone thing out of their mouth. We wonder, well, we, we know it's past. Uh, and we just, um, we hope that it wasn't that. We hope that it wasn't that. Yeah, well, um, I'm so glad that he was vindicated that it, it was the uh, report. Uh, was that it was not alcohol related. It wasn't drugs uh, related. It was an accident. And uh, so I guess we have to be pleased about that. But I'm still irritated with some of the, the talking heads. Who, that was the first thing that they jumped to. Obviously, this is the new stuff, but there's so much in your history and there's so much history with Tiger Woods that kind of want to get back into that and and talk about the great things because as people, you know, if people look at Pete McDaniel, you're connected to Earl Woods, to Tiger Woods, and there's so much great stories to tell. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I'll never write a book. <laughs> I guess I could, but I, I won't write a book, but I have a lot of, um, stories. I like to tell funny stories about Tiger and I, and, um, you know, our relationship, um, was one of always gigging each other, always picking we, with each other. And, uh, anytime we saw each other, but every time we saw each other at a golf tournament for the first time, he'd come over and I don't care what he was doing when he finished doing whatever he was doing, he'd come over and say, Petey, and he'd give me that big bear hug and he he would caress my head like so, you know, and just hold me real tight for a minute or so. And he'd ask me how I was doing. And, and uh, so we shared that kind of bond. But immediately after that, it was fair game. Anything I wanted to say to him, he had to come back. And anything he had to say to me, I had to come back. And that's the way we did the whole time uh, during the tournament. And we said some pretty uh, interesting stuff to each other. <laughs> so, and and I I thought about that too. Um, and and I long for that. Now I haven't had those opportunities in the past couple of years because he hadn't played a lot, uh, to be honest with you. Um, so I haven't seen him at many tournaments and I haven't covered very many tournaments. Uh, uh, my whole, uh, career has been, um, based around his, uh, competition. So when he doesn't compete, I don't go out. So, um, but I long for those days and I'm hoping and praying that maybe we'll have, uh, one more run and I'll get a chance to see him at a tournament and, and, and get that bear hook that I so cherish. Anyone who looks up Pete McDaniel when you Google search is going to probably come up with a role or Tiger Woods within the first sentence of whatever they find. Um, for good reason, you partnered with both on books. When you think back on Tiger, on talking with Earl and writing books with them, 
Is there something in particular that just jumps out at you as this is this is my biggest memory? Um, God, I have so many. The one thing I'll say about um, Earl first, because that's how I got to Tiger. Um, everything came through Earl. A lot of my success uh, was initiated through my relationship with Earl. And a quick story about that. Um, in 94, 1994, Tiger was coming off his first uh, U.S. Amateur Championship. Mm -hmm. And starting uh, his uh, junior year, I mean, his uh, freshman year at Stanford. And Golf World Magazine uh, was naming him their man of the year. And through the foresight of the editors at Golf World, they decided to send me out to Stanford to interview Tiger and write this doggone cover piece. I'd never written a cover piece before. This was, this was huge for me. So that's how I got introduced to Tiger. So I arrive at Stanford Golf Course that morning and Tiger meets me, he's prompt, he's right on time. And he comes in wearing a, a polo shirt and some shorts and he goes, into the uh, snack uh, bar there and he orders a stack of uh, waffles or pancakes. I forget which one. I've told the story five different times and <laughs> five different ways. But I think it was, might've been waffles, but the stack of waffles was about so high and a couple of glasses, huge glasses of orange juice. And I have prepared this list of questions, you know, I'm being very professional, this, this kid, you know, I don't know how good he is, but I know he's, he's pretty popular right now. And this is an important assignment, so I'm prepared. And I started asking him these questions. And he's whooping down these pancakes and, this, and drinking this, this orange juice. And he hadn't looked up from his plate yet. And I get about four questions in, and he's answered me with one word, answers. Yes, no. And then he'd say, what do you mean by that? And so I'd have to explain that. And then we'd get back to the questions. And then finally, I think it was about on the fifth question. I mean, I'm looking at my notes and I got absolutely nothing. And he kind of looks up at me and says, uh, he kind of smiles and he gives me this very insightful uh, answer to whatever question as if to say, okay, I've, I've kind of peeped you now and you look like you're okay. So I'll give you something that you can come back and go back and, and write a story on. So we finished the interview. And um, we go down to the practice range and he starts hitting these shots, I guess trying to impress me. You know, he's hitting these low hooks and high fades and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, and I'm saying to myself, oh, gosh, this kid is trying to, trying to uh, prove to me that he's all this, you know. And, and I'm saying to myself, look, man, I've seen Lee Trevino, big fan of Lee's, and Gary Player and Jack Nicholas and all these guys. And plus I've seen you know, Chuck Thorpe and Jim Thorpe and Jim Dent and all these guys hit balls and there. He can't impress me. Well, <sighs> long story short, uh, shorter, I should say. I go back to uh, Connecticut and I write the piece and Earl likes it and uh, calls me and tells me how much he likes it. And he says, um, Pete, uh, how busy are you? And I said, well, Earl, I'm covering the LPGA. I'm covering colleges. I've got a TV call. And I said, ask him why. He said, well, I was thinking about writing a book. 
and I thought I might ask you to uh, help me write it. And I said, on second thought, Earl, I ain't that busy. And so <laughs> we put to work on training on Tiger, and you know, the rest is history. That sticks out in my mind, but that was not only my introduction to Tiger, but to Earl as well. And from, from that um, introduction came a lot of um, good things for me. Obviously, you've gotten a lot of attention recently. I, I think a lot of people reaching out to you about the HBO documentary on Tiger. People that I know that are not big into golf, they work in sports media, but they weren't big into golf, especially late 90s, early 2000s. They came out of that saying, oh my gosh, this is so sad and he has no friends and his parents damaged him with raising. And and, and I wonder, I, I, I think we would all hope to have parents that cared so much and we'd hope to be that kind of parent to our own children that would leave him in a position where look at his world. He he's achieved success. He has his kids that he loves dearly. That is the payout to all of the work that he did and that they supported. I totally agree with you. That that's the sad part about the, the documentary. Um, that people, who came away with that that idea, that concept of who Tiger is and and where he is in his life? I don't think he's he's sad. I don't think he's a, a tragic figure at all. Believe me. Uh, and having known Earl as well as I did, and having uh, and knowing his mother as well as I do, I have nothing but admiration for those people um, as parents. You couldn't have had better parents. Um, you had one that was definitely a disciplinarian, and that was that is um, his mother. And you had Earl, who provided him with just about every opportunity to be successful that, that a parent could do, um, and provided him with uh, discipline and and um, you know a love for the the game by introducing it to him and. And, and I think the misunderstanding about uh, their, their parenting is this belief that Earl forced Tiger into the game. And that, to me, is absurd. Having four sons, as I do, and knowing that all you can do with your children is to present them with opportunities. Now, if they gravitate towards something that truly is, is important to you, I mean, that's, that's a blessing. And I think that's how Earl approached it. He gave Tiger an opportunity, and, and Tita as well, because a little as it's known, uh, she, and during the formative years, she was the one who took him to golf tournaments. And she was the one who kept score for um, him and, and his opponents. Um, and she was the one who taught him to be merciless when it came to uh, competition. So it was definitely a team. They had a great team going and Tiger benefited from it. Um, has his life uh, taken some twists and turns? All of us could say that, you know? Yeah. The only reason we talk about it is because he's been in the public eye since he was two, three, four years old. Um, some of it's uh, self-inflicted. I mean, he would acknowledge that he, he did, as a matter of fact, when he apologized for his missteps. 
Um, but has he, is he a tragic figure? Should we feel sorry for Tiger Woods? Absolutely not. Tiger is someone who has many sides. And that is the only thing that I can say um, about the documentary on HBO. It just didn't show all of Tiger's uh, sides. Um, a lot of good in that young man. A lot of good in him that people don't even talk about. They talk about his, his infidelities. Well, you know, if you want to judge somebody, I guess that's up to you. I would never judge anybody because I'm not, you know, who am I to judge anything uh, or anyone? But I do know this, Tiger Woods has a lot of depth. And on the inside, the Tiger that I know is really a good person. I think to the fact that you worked so much with Tiger, writing so much with him, writing with Earl on his book. What if somebody came to you and gave you the opportunity to finish the trilogy, if you will, and to write with Tita? Because I know what stories you've talked over the years, there is a story to be told there from this woman who, as you say, gave him the killer instinct and really created the mystique of who this guy is. You know, that would be, uh, that would have to be up to Tita and that will never happen. Uh, <laughs> all along, she's, she's, you know, her stance has been, has, has been well publicized and has been firm, you know, tiger and old man is what she would say. Dad, you know, they like the limelight, but I don't, you know, I'm in the background. And so you would never, ever have a book from Tita Woods. Um, and I think that's the way it should be. And you'll never have a book from me on, on Earl or Tiger yeah. or Tita. It's just not going to happen, you know? And, and I've done several of these uh, podcasts and, and interviews since the HBO uh, special. And I have to reiterate that there have been many books written about Tiger. I have yet to read one. I certainly did not participate in any of those that were unauthorized. Never, never would. So, um, and, I, and I have not read them either. So people ask me, well, what'd you think about so-and-so's book? Well, I don't know what to think about it because I never read it. My loyalty to Tiger and Earl and Tita runs deep. They, they chose me uh, to be, um, I call myself a fringe insider. You know, I consider myself a part, really a part of the family. I know I'm not blood family, a blood relative or anything like that, but I, I tell you, these, these people have cared for me and I've cared for them deeply over the years and that nothing's going to interrupt that. Nothing's going to stop it. It's one of those stories that I don't think people give enough respect. And I agree with you. She'd never want it, no. but it's one of those things that, Boy, it's a heck of a story to share. That, that's <laughs> her life story would be a great one, yep. you know. Minus Earl and and uh, Tiger, uh, well, pre them, their story I I believe would be just a great story about perseverance and and overcoming uh, obstacles and and being uh, 
somewhat subdued and just, you know, taking life as it came and maximizing it. And uh, the fact that, you know, she's, she's ridden a pretty doggone highway uh, with her son, uh, but always in the back seat, which is something I don't know. Most, most parents probably couldn't do that. I probably couldn't. My son would have thrown me out of the car. <laughs> in, in all the years following him in the tour, did you come across things from your, from obviously you were doing a lot with the LPGA before, mm -hmm. but did you th see changes, maybe subtle changes that you don't think really got a lot of attention in the game itself or in Tiger? In the game, in how the game dealt with players and how the, the game dealt with fame, fans. There's a lot of things you can say, oh, obviously people were getting paid more. Oh, there was more television exposure. But I know that there are things out there that we don't even necessarily pick up on that you only get when you're working regularly in a media room on tour, et cetera. Oh, boy. Um, I think this, this attitude that um, professional golfers are golfers of privilege. I think, I don't think that was there when I first uh, started covering uh, professional golf. I think there was uh, a lot of humility. A lot of the old school golfers were, were friendly guys. I mean, you could talk to them on the range. You could talk to them um, uh, about a, a variety of subjects. You could talk to their caddies. They didn't have um, yes men as agents who, who blocked you and, and who filtered every doggone thing that you had to, every um, chance you had to, to interview them. Um, I think that was the big change. And I think the younger generation of players, from what I can see, uh, and I think it started with Tiger, to be honest with you. I think, uh, you know, what used to upset me so much was fans would, Tiger would have, all of these people following him. And the fans would say, here comes Tiger and his entourage. Well, if you're going to use a, a word to describe something, you really need to know what it means. You know, we were not his entourage. We were working. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> um, and that used to upset me, but it seemed like um, there was a lot of envy, a lot of jealousy, about Tiger, uh, and I think a lot of the younger players didn't have the reverence uh, for the game that some of the old school players had. Like there was, a, like the game owed them something. Uh, I was talking uh, to uh, Bo Van Pelt, uh, who was in college when I was covering college at, uh, at Oklahoma State, and it seems that those guys, uh, they had to go to Q school, Sometimes three or four times, they had to uh, suffer through some really hard times just trying to get on tour. And a lot of these younger players, uh, it seems that they come right out of college and they're right on tour and they've got sponsorship uh, dollars and, and they have trainers and they have coaches and they have all this. this it, it's now a business, a, a serious business, almost like a corporation. Every player is, a, is in an himself and herself uh, a CEO 
mm-hmm. you know, which wasn't like that wasn't the way it was. Um, you know, certainly not in the 60s and 70s when I first was introduced to the game. And then when I started covering it in the, in the 80s, um, it wasn't that way. And I think that's the biggest change. It's an attitudinal thing. And fans want access to the players. And the biggest change has been social media. Everybody is a critic. Everybody is a quote-unquote reporter. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks that they can write. Um, you know, and it's 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 it, to me it's an intrusion in the in the players' private lives, and that disturbs me even to this day. You started around the world of golf in the '60s. You entered into journalism in the '70s. Mm-hmm. You saw the Tiger change the game as the century closed. You wrote a book about the history of African American golfers. Here we are in 2021. How has the game changed for African American golfers? Uh, it's regressed. It has regressed despite all the efforts of, of people like Bill Dickey, who um, was responsible for a lot of the young black players getting college scholarships to HBCUs mainly. Um, and that's how they got introduced to the next level of golf uh, with potential and certainly aspirations of playing the game professionally. Uh, and all of the youth uh, golf programs around the country, and there were many of them in the 70s and 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Now, uh, all the way up to the professional ranks. To this day, there have only been five uh, African-American members of the LPGA Tour. Uh, To this day, there are only four, I believe, four or five, I'd have to name them, uh, active members of uh, the PGA Tour who are of African-American descent. Four or five. Well, you go back to the 60s and 70s when uh, Lee Elder and Pete Brown and Charlie Sifford and all those guys were playing, you might have in one tournament stop a dozen African-Americans make the tournament that week. And that includes Monday morning uh, qualifiers. Um, and you had that way, that all through the 60s and into the 70s until the all-exempt tour came along. And then that, that is really what changed it for African-Americans and other minorities, as a matter of fact. The game is more international now, and that's good. I applaud that. I love to see, uh, you know, the Europeans come over and play and, and uh, the Asians. And, you know, I love the diversity that's on tour. I just wish that African-Americans uh, represented uh, a larger share of the, the limelight. Uh, had more opportunities to compete. And to that end, you do have some, some organizations now, some, some mini tours that have uh, sprung up that are trying to introduce more uh, African-Americans and, and other minorities to the big time, um, like the Advocates uh, uh, Professional Golf Association Tour. 
lot of people don't realize it, but um, several players from the, have graduated from that tour and made it to the PGA Tour. So there are efforts being made that it's really slow. It's, it's really slow. We have so much more to do. Uh, the big thing with Tiger when he came out, you know, everybody was excited because he, he um, stated flatly that he wanted golf to look more like America. And there was this, this enthusiasm, this excitement that that was going to happen. Um, but that was 25 years ago. I think we're celebrating his 25th year as a professional um, this fall. And, you know, he was the only one then. I mean, Jim Thorpe was just exiting and Tiger was making his entrance on the PGA Tour. And uh, you have three more uh, in the past 25 years. That's not a good uh, number. I thought about it for a while and I came up with something that I thought was unique and unusual. Mm-hmm when I was looking for an explanation and it actually comes from the movie Caddyshack. Okay. Where the caddy master says, do you all want to be replaced by golf carts? And to that end, that killed off a lot of caddying in this country. And so many people that I've talked to on this show, they say that their first start was as a caddy. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if that killed a big entree into the game of golf is that opportunity to be a caddy and then decide I want to play. You know, I've heard that argument and, and there's some validity to it because like, as you know, a lot of the early golfers, African-Americans started out as caddies. Most of them did, as a matter of fact, that's where the interest came. And that was a, a, an out. Uh, they saw it uh, as an opportunity to, to uh, improve their, their status, their living status. Um, and to some, it was. A lot of them, uh, you know, made it to the, the PGA Tour, but most of them didn't. Um, it's hard to say. You know, if, if you talk about caddies, that might have been a big hurdle uh, to overcome once, once the golf carts came in and uh, I guess it was cheaper to have golf carts than it was to have caddies. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Because, um, you know, you had to purchase those golf carts and caddies were a lot more reliable when it came to giving yardage. I don't know what a golf cart could do, you know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> now they have all kinds of gadgets and stuff that can not only tell you what the yardage is, but also tell you what the lie is and, you know, and the slope and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's just technology. Uh, but I'm sure it did put a dent in the participation of African-Americans in the game. Um, but there was there was another thing that I think really hurt probably more than that. My generation, and I've said this a number of times, my generation kind of dropped the ball. We grew up as caddies and we learned to love the game. I mean, genuinely love it so much that I'm 68 years old and I'm still getting out there trying to play this game. All of my peers are still trying to play this game. You guess what? Our children, I have four sons, one of them plays the game. 
And he started playing it when he was in his uh, late 20s. And he's 46 now. So we kind of dropped the ball. I never took my kids to the golf course with me. Mm-hmm. I never took them to hit golf balls with me. They knew that I loved the game, but they played football, baseball, basketball, all the other sports, and they thought golf was just boring as heck and stupid. And so what Earl Woods did with Tiger, you, you, can, you can appreciate it more, at least I can, because Earl loved the game. He just took him with him. And he, tra- he took him with him, you know. I didn't do it. I was out there trying to hustle and beat those guys that I was playing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So there's that gap there. And I think it's equally um, um, important as, as uh, golf carts um, having, uh, you know, thin the caddy ranks. I'm 49 years old and – we'll go to a high school reunion and guys that I played football with, we all get together. And this was, this was an upper class crowd, but they joke that this one guy, he had it right. When he played golf, we were all busy playing tennis. You know, that that's how it was back in the eighties is that even, even for a group of, of upper end white guys, they weren't playing golf at that time either. So it was just, it was a generational thing where, it's come back in some sectors. It hasn't come back in others. And hopefully it just keeps growing because everybody's welcoming golf. And it's a golf, as you say, it's a game you can play for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And, and it's a perfect game for someone who's truly a competitor. It teaches you the, the best thing that came from loving golf for me. You know, I was an athlete. I played basketball, football, baseball. I hustled pool. I did all these doggone things, but it taught me discipline, self-discipline, you know, because you and, and, and you need that as a competitor. You have to know when to pounce and when to back off. And um, golf will teach you that. Pounce at the wrong time. Be aggressive at the wrong time. Take a risk when you really don't need to. If you, if you don't believe me, the biggest risk taker in the game, in the history of the game is probably Phil Mickelson. And Phil not been such a risk taker he might have four or five more major championships today you have to have that self-discipline and you can't think you're superman because you're never going to beat the game you just cannot beat it you know you might get up on it today you got around tomorrow it beats you to death tomorrow and you wonder what happened what happened to my game why couldn't i take it from yesterday to today you know, in the, in, the, in the documentary, Muni, which I'm so proud of, my, my good friend Paul Bonesteel produced that. Uh, Mr. Baxter. It ended with him saying how he had, uh, he would take what he learned today and try to apply it tomorrow when he came out, you know. But he said just as likely he will show up tomorrow and have the same game that he had today. Okay. <laughs> And that's golf. That's what's so, but that's life. You know, it's a microcosm. Earl wrote in Training a Tiger that golf is a microcosm of life. And it's so true. Um, you know, it, it, it teaches you so much about how um, to make it from one day to the next day, how to set goals, how to be uh, regimented in your goals, and uh, you know, keep your keep your eye on the prize. I mean, it's there's so much to the game. So 
I know that's a long-winded answer, and I apologize. No, I don't apologize. That's who I am. I talk a lot. That's what we're here for. <laughs> that's why. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Is because you give long-winded answers. <laughs> oh, how is your game? My game sucks. To be honest with you, I'm. Um, I had spine surgery. This is my. Wow, well, you really do like Tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a built-in excuse for my game sucking. It was sucking before the spine surgery, but but it really is bad now. I um, in 2018 uh, November, I'd been experiencing some uh, numbness in my right arm, and it went down into my leg, and I was really getting kind of scared. And come to find out, I had a pinched nerve. I thought I had a pinched nerve, and I thought that was it. Well after being examined by a neurologist, um, they discovered that I had about an inch gap in my spine, in my cervical area. Wow. Uh, where the uh, spinal cord had totally disappeared. It was flattened, so flat you couldn't even see it. So, and that was causing all my problems. So I had the surgery, the same surgery Tiger had on his lower back, uh, I had on my upper back. And it took me, I guess a year before I started feeling halfway normal, uh, but I've lost so much power, you know. So now these guys, these younger guys, they won't let me play from the white tees because they say I'm Pete McDaniel, and you know they real, they just revel in an opportunity to beat me. I still hold my own with them, but <laughs> it's with a real sucky game that I beat them. That tells you how bad they are. So to answer your question, the game. I don't think it's ever going to get any better either. <laughs> and yet you still go out and play. I still go out and play. I've got a Tuesday group. And, you know, we play all around the area, various golf courses, and we have so much fun talking trash. And, you know, the one thing I can still do, though, uh, I've got a, um, a belly-length putter that I use the claw on. And let me tell you something. When I get in position to make a putt, my guys pretty much walk off the green. They're so scared. <laughs> I'm going to knock it in. I can roll the rock now. I can do that. Can't do much else, but I can roll the rock. Well, that's teeing me up for this. We always like to wrap up our talks here on the range by jumping in the Wayback Machine. And since I tend to talk a lot about equipment, I want to know about that one club that you can think back on and you knew. That was my one. It may not be something you currently use, but I I know something's already popped in your head, and it's like this is this was my favorite club. This is the one that touches me in the heart. A Titleist six iron that I had my one and only hole in one with at a golf course in Connecticut. Fairchild Wheeler, they call it the wheel, and it was about I don't know a few miles from my office at Golf Digest and Golf World. And uh, I was playing with um, one of my colleagues. And I hit this slight draw, downhill hole. I think it was like 185 yards. This six iron, every time I swung this, this club, it was just a beautifully, perfectly struck uh, ball. And I actually saw it go in. It landed about 15 feet in front of the hole rolled out and just curved right into the doggone cup. That's the only hole-in-one that I had, I've ever had. And I can, to this day, take a six-iron out of my doggone bag. I have another set of clubs now, a newer set of clubs. 
but that club for some reason uh, allows me to hit the kind of shape shot that I want to hit. I can flush it almost every time. So that's that's my favorite club. Pete, thanks for taking the time to join us. Your hard work in covering golf and specifically Tiger has given us so much insight into the game and, of course, one of the greatest, if not the greatest player ever. I know a lot of us are a lot better off from your work, so thanks again for joining us. I appreciate you. That was Pete McDaniel, and you should take a look into his books, First Uneven Lies, The Heroic Stories of African Americans in Golf. He co-wrote Earl Wood's book, Training a Tiger, and, of course, Tiger's bestseller, How I Play Golf. He worked with Tiger on countless instructional articles as well. Uh, We only got a small taste of the stories that he has accumulated over the years, but it was a Good to have a nice, well-rounded talk with him. That was fun. Before we go, as we discussed earlier with Pete, the world of golf and the world at large was shocked this week with the horrifying automobile accident involving Tiger Woods. The recent HBO documentary on Tiger left many people, professional broadcasters that I work with in sports even, actually believing that this man lived a life of solitude, disliked by his peers and generally alone in isolation. They believe in something that is just not true. While those older than Tiger were certainly turned off by his approach to the game when he first arrived on the scene, that modern direction has proven to be the way for a generation of younger players who not only followed Tiger as their idol growing up, but have patterned many aspects of their golf lives after his successful model. That's why professionals wore red on Sunday, as a show of respect and love for the greatest player of their lives, if not all time. How do they feel about Tiger Woods? Here's what Colin Morikawa told NBC after winning the World Golf Championship event on Sunday. Tiger means everything to me. And, you know, yes, he had the crash, and thankfully he's all right, and hopefully he has a quick and and great recovery. Um, But I don't think we say thank you enough, so I want to say thank you to Tiger. Um, Because, you know, sometimes you, you lose people too early, and that's like, you know, Kobe, I lost my grandpa about a month ago. Um... And you don't get to say thank you enough. So thank you, guys. Thank you indeed. And get well soon. There is plenty of new gear available for 2021. And the best place to get deep inside looks at it all is the Golf Spotlight. We're dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Go to thegolfspotlight.com, click on the YouTube subscribe button, and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features because there is a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at the Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter at Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments anywhere we always reply. You've listened this far, so subscribe to the range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of the range, so let's get out our golf clubs and hit the course, but... Before we do, ask yourself, is there someone who you don't take to the course that might just love the game as much as we all do? Maybe an invite is in order. Cherish the days playing and the memories they create, and we will talk to you next time, right here on The Range. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.